Hey everyone, and welcome to This Anthro Life. I'm your host, Adam Gamwell. Today, we're bringing you another crossover episode with my sister podcast, Experience by Design, co-hosted by my friend, sociologist, professor, and business consultant, Gary David. Today, we're sitting down with business anthropologist, Oscar Barrera. Oscar is based out of Veracruz, Mexico. And what I love about his work is that it aims to bring some humanity into corporations through basic problem solving. I think this is one of the fundamental takeaways of this episode. We can think about anthropology as a toolkit that brings human-centered problem solving to businesses and corporations. Now, what's interesting about Oscar and his profession is that he is able to kindle a greater sense of compassion within corporations through the application of basic anthropological theory. Whether that's generating intercultural communication in the workplace, developing a more personal and individualized marketing scheme, or just simply cultivating a more benevolent and altruistic and human relationship with consumers. Now, while some might believe that there's no space for collaboration between anthropology and business, or that there is some sort of unscrupulous or dishonorable notion to it, I just want to point out that it is my stance and the stance of this podcast that that is just not true. Oscar helps us see how business as a form of exchange is fundamentally about human relationships. Now, of course, when we look at many corporations, it's easy to see how both employees and consumers can be exploited and preyed upon by people choosing to make bad, selfish, or inhuman decisions. But the stories Oscar shares in this episode help reveal the crucial ways that participation as an anthropologist within the business world becomes an ethical decision to act, to try and better the lives of those within the system. And if we're being frank, that means everyone. So in this episode, we're going to dig into Oscar's journey from academia to the business world and how we can translate anthropological tools into real-world application. And if you're interested in doing more work in business or trying to figure out how to get into it, this episode has some really great examples where Oscar walks us through how he did his anthropological work within business. We hope you enjoy. So Oscar, thanks, thanks for joining us today. We're really excited to talk with you and get your perspective as a business anthropologist and as an organizational consultant and so much of the other work. You're an author, you put together courses, you put together training. So there's a lot of really great directions to start with. So I think one of the, one of the cool things to start off is, is a bit about your own superhero origin story. And tell us a little bit about how you decided to go study social sciences and anthropology and what that path was like for you. To keep a long story short, I got my bachelor's degree in tourism studies in Mexico City. I grew up in Mexico City. Then by random coincidences, I end up in San Cristobal de las Casas in the highlands of Chiapas. Mm. And I met several anthropologists there. And there was one in particular that he he was, he's Mexican and he was so funny. He was so funny. But uh, he was so funny, but extremely Mm. clever. And I said, I want to be just like him. (laughs) <laughs> I want to be just like him. And I said, this guy is just brilliant. How, how is he able to analyze uh, society, culture, things like that? I said, I want to be just like him. And then I made a decision uh, to become an anthropologist. And I was invited to study uh, my graduate studies at the University of Washington, invited by Pierre Vandenberg. He invited me to, to join the PhD program. And that's how I ended up in Seattle, Washington, studying anthropology. But basically, I was fascinated by the way anthropologists see and understand the world. I think it's a pretty common thing, actually. When people say to me, what's the difference between anthropology and sociology? I usually say anthropologists are cooler and funnier. (laughs) So I'm actually serious. If you hang around with a bunch of sociologists, you would agree, too. (laughs) So I'm not surprised by your story that the anthropologist was both funny and cool and persuasive, three things that sociologists often lack. It's funny, too, because it's always this uh, maybe internal social science debate, right? Yeah, which... Who's cooler? But as anthropologists, I'm curious, Oscar, if you found this too, but a lot of dialogue actually from anthropologists, like when I was in graduate school, they would always be like, nobody ever calls anthropologists. They always call sociologists or economists when they need problems solved, they being the mm-hmm. public or the government. I don't know, did you find, did people talk about that too when you were studying? <laughs> I don't know if it's true. Mm-hmm. No, actually, uh, no, I, I didn't hear that when I was in graduate school. That's good then. Okay. Yeah. Maybe it's just maybe it's just a weird East Coast thing. Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's just Brandeis. Just Brandeis. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny though, but it makes sense too. Like I was actually I was talking to a, a colleague, Helen Fisher, also an anthropologist. She did biological anthropology the other week, but she's um, really been big in doing work on like love and sex and relationships, and has been studying mm-hmm. that for years. 
And she says, she goes, it's funny, whenever I meet an anthropologist, I've never met one that I didn't think was interesting. I might not like them, but at least they're interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I've met plenty of sociologists who I did not think were interesting. So there again, there is evidence go, right? of anthropologists being uh-huh. cooler and more interesting. I'm curious, did your graduate studies focus on business itself or did that, was that kind of a piece that you decided to build in to your work? And, and when did that start to happen? When did that the idea of, of thinking about business well, and organizational uh, culture come in? My interest in business started after I finished my PhD. Mm-hmm. I lived in, in Africa and Europe. I was a year and a half overseas, just living and working in different places. Then I decided to base my, my home in, in Berlin, in Germany. So after striving to find a job as an anthropologist for NGOs, and for the civil society, international organizations with civil society, I couldn't find a job. Mm. <laughs> Their budgets were very tight. They were interested in my qualifications, but they had no money. Mm. Fair. So I said, I'm not, I'm not interested in waiting tables. I'm interested in, in doing, I don't know, this kind of manual work. I want to really pursue my career as an anthropologist. So I decided to return to Mexico and start my business as, a, as an anthropologist. Mm-hmm. And a friend of mine in Berlin, she said, Oscar, if you cannot find the job of your dreams, why don't you create it? And I said, yeah, that's very smart. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm going to do, and I'm going to go back to Mexico and do it. And it took me a while to, yeah. first, to have the courage, and second, to figure it out how this business world functions which is very different from the academia. Yeah. So tell us a bit about what, what were some of those differences that you ran into? Let me tell you this uh, very straightforward. What helped you to get here won't be able to help you to get there. So mm-hmm. I was a, a good graduate student. I was smart. <laughs> I, I did a, a very decent uh, dissertation. I wrote a novel. I did an experimental ethnography. And I said, well, I have good writing, I have, I'm creative, I am very restless in my mind. So certainly I can start a, a business, can start a company, consulting for companies. I was working for a school here in Veracruz, and then I decided to go on my own and starting my own consulting business, and I had savings for three months. And I said, well, in three months, certainly I can find a client. <laughs> it's easy. Yeah. No so... After three months, I had no money, no income. (laughs) Five months, six months, and I said, wow, this is, nobody told me this. (laughs) Nobody told me this. And it was very stressful working with uh, businesses. It's it's a different kind of mindset. You need to understand the market. You need to understand selling. You need to understand marketing. You need to understand a bunch of things that you never learned in graduate school. Mm. So I had to learn, I had to be very self-diligent and I start to to get a master's or a PhD in business teaching myself. (laughs) Right, that's awesome. I I swallow books and businesses. I uh, listen to all the podcasts. I contact a bunch of business owners. I I joined uh, BNI Business Network International I learned how to do networking. I learned uh, uh, the kinds of things that you shouldn't do in business, the kinds of things that you should do in business by just, as an anthropologist, by just watching and observing other business owners. And I said, this is something that I must copy. Oh, that's something I should never do. (laughs) So just by observing and by trial and error, I did several mistakes. Yeah. So it's like, like what? Like uh, thinking that your product is great, like uh, any recent entrepreneur, right? You think that mm-hmm. your product is great, right? My first sales pitch was was with a company and I was overpriced. I, th- I thought myself I was way too good. Yeah. <laughs> they said, Oscar, we cannot afford you. How can we pay you? Well, you can pay me in installments. At the end, I didn't know how to negotiate. I didn't know how to have to do all the basics. You are you're going to to be in the business world, you need to know the basics, how to negotiate, how to mm-hmm. read people's uh, body language of the person that you are trying to convince. Mm-hmm. You, all these kinds of things that I had to learn along the way. 
I find it pretty impressive that you overpriced yourself because usually social scientists <laughs> go the opposite way. It will work for almost nothing. So I, I think it's I think it's a good sign that you were too expensive because that in in business, in the mind of business people, you must not be worth anything if you're too cheap. But if you're really expensive, you must know a lot of stuff. So good for you for, for going big. <laughs> yeah, I went very big and then I started to go down. <laughs> but then you look generous and not, yeah. now you look like you're doing them a favor and not mm -hmm. just starting really low and trying to scratch and call your way up. I mean, negotiation, pricing, those are all things that they never teach us in graduate school. And I'm with you. People ask me when I talk to sociologists about this stuff, they're like, where do I, how do I learn this? I say, act like an anthropologist or an ethnographer, go do field work among the business types and learn the ways of that tribe and that group. You know, and apply those same skills you would use for doing a field study to understanding the nature of that area of work that you want to work in. Yeah, joining the, the this business network international organization really was a school for me. I learned so much about behaviors. I learned a lot about good practices. I learned about, as I said, the kinds of things that you shouldn't do as an entrepreneur. I used them to create my own branding, my own personal mm. brand. Sure. By, by just observing what others were doing, I said, I'm going to do the opposite. <laughs> it's funny. It sounds like in, in the way that you're thinking about this, that your skills as an anthropologist or an ethnographer, that, that kind of gave you some of the, the way to think about how do I learn what I need to learn? Yeah. As, a, as an anthropologist, I knew that, that <laughs> there were so many things I didn't, do, I didn't know about electronic marketing, right? Yeah. Like yeah. E marketing. But I, as an anthropologist, I know how to figure it out. It's funny. It's, they say at the end of the day, like business is, is people, right? It's relationships. And that's something that ethnographers, sociologists, anthropologists are, are trained in, in the base, like at the base level in thinking about. One, one other question too that, that I'm thinking about is like, how do you define what becomes business anthropology? This is an anthropology applied to a business context or helping solve business problems. Like, how do you think about what makes business anthropology different from anthropology, you know, by itself? Well, there is, a big, there is a big difference. The methodologies are different. In business, you are paid by results. You cannot tell the professor, oh, I need another week. <laughs> or I need uh, the informants that don't have time to, uh, for me to respond. Well, right. in, in business, you, you feel that way. Yeah. There is no, you need to, you get paid by results. And therefore, you need to show the results. And sometimes I have to create a proposal in two hours and I do the best. It's not a perfect and greatest proposal as I thought I, I wrote when I was in my graduate school, but it worked. <laughs> yeah. The project was accepted. I think the big difference is the mindset. Mm. You need, for business, you need a business mindset. For a, If you are doing just Social research, you just focus on doing social research, but for business, you need to understand the language of business and the dynamics of business. That makes good sense. And Gary, I'm curious. So Gary teaches classes in experience design and employee experience in, in the business school at Bentley University. And so I'm curious thinking about that too, like obviously teaching students and like they have a different incentive in terms of getting grades and, and classwork and stuff like that. However, what, how, does that resonate with you, Gary, the idea of, of how do you train the mindset for business thinking while also training people in the social sciences? Yeah, the mindset is different with the students I typically get because, and I don't mean to be stereotypical, but I'm gonna be stereotypical, that the <laughs> business students tend to be more focused on vocational skills, a transactional kind of relationship. I need to know X in order to get paid Y and really lack the larger, broader thinking ability. The innovation piece is I, I would say comes from our ability as social scientists to integrate disparate and divergent pieces of information in new and creative ways. And often the business students don't even know that's a thing, right? Mm -hmm. They're fixated on problem, solution, answer, result versus mm -hmm. how can I look at this differently? How can I shift perspectives? What kind of theoretical lenses could I apply to this to come at it from a different way? How do I think about even the, the subjective nature of reality and what that means for expanding our understanding of a topic? Mm. That's arts and I've found sociologists, arts and sciences students, they get that, that excites them. The business students, not so much. 
And so you've got to excite the business students with that. But then with the arts and sciences students, you've got to embed them in a practicality of at some point, you've got to turn it into something, as Oscar was saying, that shows results and can be delivered. Yeah, that that makes sense too. And I think that's an important piece that I think is one of the great challenges of, of education today, but also even for entrepreneurs to do social impact work or have it in social sciences infused into entrepreneurship also requires that like broader lens. And so I think it's, it's interesting too, because it's like, I feel that we're seeing more and more social scientists, grad students wanting to go into business or into industry. We're seeing, which is great. It's partially where a lot of work is. Academia is, is a tough place to get into and it's a different mindset, obviously. But to back to your point, Oscar, before of that, like it's even just having to realize what business acumen you didn't have coming out of graduate school. And that's my same experience too. It's that like, I've had to learn as an entrepreneur, what it means to market myself and my business. And Gary's actually been really helpful as I was getting started to think about how to even put together a proposal that you were talking about too. Like the idea of what does it mean to put together a proposal in a few hours that is two pages at most, maybe three pages long, that details the statement of work and what it's going to cost and the timeline. And like being able to estimate those things at first is feels impossible. But then as you get, you do it more, you understand how long it takes to do different kinds of projects. But there is, there's a lot of space for that too, I think. Podcasts like Entrepreneur on Fire and and businesses and and books and stuff that are all about helping people figure out what are the methods and stuff we need. So I guess we're doing this right now, but I'm like, I feel like we need to make an explicit podcast that's about social science and business. Oh, wait, we are. Yeah. uh, (laughs) That's the right move, I think. So so I'm curious, Oscar, at what point did you feel like you were making it? Obviously, maybe when you got paid, which which would be helpful. But when you feel like you've, you've like finally cracked the code and you've been able to talk to businesses and have them set up work together. What was that like when you finally cracked it into business? I would say that when you feel like a, you have cracked it into business, it's a personal experience. Mm. The numbers might be a reflection of it. I mean, your bank account. It's <laughs> <laughs> a good measure. But, but also I might say that there, are, there were moments in which I have said to myself, oh, Oscar, this is so great. I, this is, the numbers in my bank account are great good projects, and then all of a sudden, something like a COVID-19, <laughs> yeah. and things start to change, and you say, uh-huh. <laughs> that, so that's an illusion, right? As an anthropologist, you say, everything is relative, right? <laughs> everything <laughs> is true. relative. I think for me is when I felt like I am doing like a major contribution for a company, this is I feel like I am in my element. I am like a fish in the water. Oh, this feels so good because I'm making a difference. Yeah. With an entrepreneur that he's pursuing to build an empire and he's very selfish, self-centered. And and I jump in into the company and try to to make the company more human. Right. Where people could value each other for who they are, not for what they do and what they produce. So... Mm -hmm. When I add this human element in a company and people start to see themselves differently and, and the outcomes in the company are different, I feel like, okay, this is, this is it. This, mm. is, this is good. Or when I, a company suffers a challenge or is uh, facing a challenge in their sales and I jump in with some crazy Oscar ideas and things start to move, to move on, I say, okay, this is good. For me, those are the, my, my moments, my special moments. There's a really important thing I think Oscar just said that I don't want to miss. And it's, I've come across sociology students and professors who think it's unethical and immoral to work with businesses because we come from a mindset of disenfranchised peoples who are taken advantage of by large corporations. Mm-hmm. What Oscar said is so important because I would say it's unethical to not engage with these businesses to try to make them more human to hold back what we know and hopefully infuse that humanistic element, that humanistic impulse, which is why we got into these uh, professions in the first place, to hold that back and not try to engage, I, I actually think is immoral, unethical, or at least not living to the promise of the disciplines themselves. So I just wanted to really underline or highlight that point that you made, Oscar, of we're not just doing this for the money, we're doing it to try to make a positive difference for those who are affected by the companies, either as internal employees, external customers, or stakeholders that live in the communities where these companies reside. I totally agree with you. And I firmly believe that you don't change something by fighting against it. 
you change something by creating something new to replace it. So that's what I'm trying to do with my business model. I work better with companies that are thrilled to change, that are that want to do things differently and in a, in a very creative way. Even though when they don't know how, where to start or what to do, I love to help those companies who are willing to do something different. So let me start a case of a company that sells medical equipment. This company, uh, they, they were doing very good in terms of the numbers. They were growing, listen to this, they were growing to a rate of 20% every year. Wow. In the last three years, they were growing a lot. So they, they, were, they didn't have any problems with the numbers. But when you look at the people, they had serious problems with people. They lay off a lot of people all the time, primarily in the sales department. And they, they hire new people. And inside, there was a lot of animosity. There was a lot of tension because the company arrived to results by pressuring people, by coercing people, by putting ultimatums. So the people were making money, but the ambience, the... The atmosphere in the company was very tense. Even the first day that I started working uh, as a consultant, they lay out a salesperson mm-hmm. because some internal issue. So they, what I did with that company is that the first two weeks, I spent some, some time just hanging out in the company, doing research, ethnographic research, to get a sense of what's going on. So for two weeks, I did ethnographic research, taking notes. I seated on the conference room, I walk around in the hall and see people's interactions in the next to the water cooler. And uh, I sit in their offices, just observing and taking notes. And then I realized what was going on and who were the tensions, what were the reasons of the frictions and tensions among people. So I knew that if I write a report and tell the the board of directors and the owner, okay, these are the, my findings. I knew if I, I show up with a report, they will say, oh, that's interesting, Oscar. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Good. We will we'll do something about it. And I knew they wouldn't do anything about it. Right. <laughs> yeah. So I said, okay, I, I know what's going on, but I first need to do an, an assessment with everybody in the company. So in, the, in a big room, all the employees, staff, board of directors, owners were in the room and I conducted the OKI, the Organizational Cultural Assessment Tool Mm. or instrument. And in that workshop, people were able to see the culture that prevailed in the company, which was hierarchical. And people hated, but they became aware, they became conscious of what was going on. And if you know this instrument, you not only get a a photograph of what's going on in, in the current moment, but also you project in the future, what is the kind of company, culture that people want to work in? So everybody choose to work in a autocratic kind of culture where people were able to make decisions, to make proposals, to provide ideas. And the results were, were product of people's consensus instead of just following obedience or orders about what to do. So this was like a crucial moment for the company because everybody became very aware that we couldn't go on anymore with this kind of hierarchical culture. We need to do something different. So I designed a plan as an anthropologist to work on three lines. The first line was make people aware of where they were at in terms of their culture. The second was to change people's story. People needed to feel different. People needed to, to be the, the protagonist or the the actors of the characters of the movie, <laughs> right? the actors of the movie, instead of just being the puppets. And, and the third line was to work on the system and procedures, because most of the frictions among people were due to very broken systems and procedures. Mm. So it will be futile to work on people's relationships if the costs will still prevail. Mm-hmm. So... I conducted workshops with people in different departments in order to arrive to the pain points in each department and where are the, 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 the frictions with the other departments. So it was in a very autocratic kind of atmosphere. People voiced their issues, 
people uh, make proposals, suggestions about how to change things. So it was a very collaborative kind of system or, or work. And people arrived to different kinds of, of rules and different kinds of systems to work. For instance, the salespeople used to, to send the orders to ship the equipment to the doctors to any time during the day. But the people in the storage room, they were really stressed out because the UPS service arrived only at, until 3 p.m. So they, they had to package everything very nicely. And the salespeople just were coming in and out at any time. So they were very stressed out. And the frictions came for these kinds of... This was only a, a small case. But just to illustrate that people were creating tensions among themselves. So with the, when I conducted the workshops, people established a new set of rules and they have to be accountable for them. Hmm. So uh, the first week was a little bit tense <laughs> because people still wanted to drag their own way of doing things. But after the first week, things start to go smoothly. Yeah, that, that's great too. So even in this idea of raising people's awareness of what their internal culture is like, it's a great example because it's simple, but just having the sales team not realize that there are, there's a shipping cutoff, that's just an externality to the company. UPS just doesn't run after 3 p.m. or doesn't pick up is, is an incredibly important detail that, that it's, you know, it's partially about communication and raising awareness. Yeah. Yeah. And also, as I said, this is a company that get things done at, at any expense, right? So when, uh, before there was this practice that, that the salespeople wanted to ship something, but if this, the storage people didn't want to do it, they called the boss <laughs> and they called the owner. Hmm. And the owner gave the order, yeah, you just go and put that packet because the <laughs> customer needs it. So there was a traffic of influences, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. With the workshop of uh, the Okai workshop, the, the owner and the board of directors were there. So they knew that they were, all, they were also participants of the chaos. Right. And mm. they have to be accountable themselves too. So uh, to put everybody on the same page was key for the cultural transformation of this company. When people become aware that they need to change and they, they are aware that they need to change, people change. Otherwise, if you force them, if you motivate them, nothing, no, nothing's going to happen. <laughs> people mm -hmm. need a reason, a powerful reason. That's why the, the, the other pillar of my methodology was to change people's story, to make people themselves the heroes of their own story. Right. They have to be in charge. It was not dependent upon the owner or the board of directors. If we want to change, we, we need to do something ourselves. We cannot expect for the change to come from outside or from somebody else. We need to do it ourselves. No, I mean, that makes perfect sense too. I'm curious then, so what did that look like in terms of helping people retell their stories or, or kind of become the hero of their own story? Is that is this part of the workshop? They just knew that there was this Dr. Oscar <laughs> that coming up with these crazy workshops <laughs> and crazy procedures and crazy meetings. And who knows what all, all of this is taking us, but things are changing. Mm, I see. <laughs> things okay, are yeah. changing. So they even know that by putting people together in a room, working their pain points and, and coming up with new solutions, they were changing their story. Mm. They didn't know that. I, me as an anthropologist, I knew it. Right. Yeah. But they, they were not, they, I didn't have to. I mean, that's what the anthropological gaze is very important because you are able to see what ordinary people with no training cannot see. Mm -hmm. And the, the, the funny thing about that is they, it's not that they can't see it because it's not there. It's visible, mm -hmm. but they lack the ability to see it. Adam and I were joking the other day mm -hmm. and I said something like, yeah, I notice things. That's what I do. My job is to notice things. <laughs> and, and we've been trained to see things that are right there to be seen, but other people are going to miss because they don't know how to notice them. And it doesn't have to be some major event. Often it's in the, the smallness of the moment that we can find the most important piece of information about the nature of the culture and the relationship. Yeah. And I think too, something else that really jumped out to me there is that anthropological, sociological training does give us a, a specific way of seeing something. And so I think there actually really is an interesting point, Oscar, about that 
doing workshops in identifying pain points and raising awareness within the, the community itself was a fundamentally important practice that like then the other side of it is the anthropologist kind of sees we're actually helping you create your own narratives, even though they don't use that language. But mm-hmm. that's it's an interesting piece in terms of thinking about how business and, and social sciences work together, because there are pieces of social theory like you're talking about, like how do we think narratively about helping somebody feel more positive about the work they're doing or their contributions. And it is about helping them get a sense of ownership of their story, right? Yet the workshop itself is doing like pain point identification and then identifying solutions that we could use to solve that. The other cool pieces of thinking about how social sciences work and so why businesses might not see the social science side, but then the flip side of why social science students can't see the business side because they don't realize the methodology just sounds different doing pain points, you know, affinity mapping maybe, but they're doing the same thing. And I think that's like a really... A fundamentally important piece of what you're saying too is that learning to see both sides there. One thing that also was crucial is to empower people. Following this this other pillar of helping people to create their own story, for me it was important that the employees felt uh, heard and felt mm-hmm. empowered. So I suggested the formation of a committee conform or of employees with a uh, representative, with a member of each department in the company. So that this committee will have the uh, voice of all the departments. And these were the cultural committee. They were in charge of organizing activities to make the company more cohesive. Mm. So they organized like a football or basketball tournaments, uh, bowling, some uh, workshops, some celebration of a holiday, the Independence Day, things like that. Mm. And they had the responsibility to, to, make, to, to encourage all the members of the company to participate. Of course, it was optional. No, no one was forced to do it, but everybody participated. And these activities helped people in the company to, to level up their differences. They were able to see themselves more for who they are as human beings and know because he's the one that does all the accounting, right? Right. <laughs> so I, I, I came up with some uh, suggestions that will help people to, to change their story. So it's, it was not only about uh, conducting workshops, it's about with your anthropological or social scientist gaze and sensitivity, what can be good for this company? What can be good for these people in order to arrive to the goals that they want, is, which is how they could be more autocratic. And I think too, having that perspective and that what is good to this organization, what is good to this community, thinking as the anthropologist, what is good for them is fundamentally important too. Instead of just saying, here's what you should do, you're actually helping like them be autocratic by helping them put together a committee to then do activities that will help them be more cohesive. So it's like helping goodness in their own terms be able to flourish by not telling them what to do in order to be good, but let's set the path that we can see that'll help you then define good for you and then to enact that. I think that's also a really important piece too, where it's flexible based on on what you're seeing that the the community is defining for themselves. And I think to me, that's also like an important piece of, of social science thinking, you know, taking people on their own terms, as it were, right? Seeing on their own perspectives right. and like they're allowed to define their own goals kind of thing. And then obviously we can come in with ideas, but it's also basically what we see from that anthropological gaze is how to then, what are we seeing that they are saying, this is good. I want to do that. I want to be more autocratic. And then we can help them enact that is, is, is a good thing. And that's, it's a good example of how that can happen without telling people what to do, without being prescriptive, right? The other thing I like about this is that it's it's very subversive. It, it, at a time when, again, speaking as a sociologist, when we see labor movements down in the United States, union membership down, the organizing ability of workers down, when we start talking about employee experience, for instance, as a field that I teach a course in, we can translate the needs of employees into language that organizations can understand to have positive impacts on culture, quote unquote, but also on the employees' lives. And, and as I would tell co- companies, if you want to improve customer experience, you need to start with employee experience. And the good news is I can point to any number of business consultants and business leaders who say the same thing. And then that creates an opening for us and 
to be subversive <laughs> and go in mm -hmm. and say, plus the fact that you use the Okai uh, tool. Now you have numbers in a survey, which is recognizable to them as evidence to say, well, this is what the cert, this is what the numbers are telling us we need to do. And then they'll accept that versus if you were just saying, based on my field notes, the field notes would have told you the same thing probably, but you needed that kind of quantitative representation of evidence to make it a fact in their eyes, which then allowed you to be subversive. So it's really a beautiful story and, the, the, and all of those very you know, nuanced elements of what you did and how you accomplished it. Yeah, currently the company is doing very good as a result of the work that I did. It was a, it was a project last year. Mm. So they were able to cope with COVID-19 in a very successful way, in a very successful way, because people start to work from home. Right. And people were just accountable and they were just happy to work at home. And they, there was so much support towards each other in this process. Mm -hmm. I love this idea that it's, it's a subversive power that's actually helping them flourish in a time of challenge, like during COVID-19, that they can actually do well at home because they have a sense of cohesion and community and purpose in their work that they may have not had before or some tensions have melted away. And it, it's great to just you know, to cycle back to this idea that the anthropological gaze in this lens is a way of seeing, but then it actually works really well. I, I like your point, Gary, that like we can borrow the tools like Okai and then get some quantitative metrics. We could do net promoter score stuff. You can do whatever kinds of methodologies on top of the anthropological gaze that you might need in order to present quote unquote facts to the business. So they can say, ah, yes, we see evidence that your research or your work is finding something or doing something and that we can right. follow it. And yet the, the cool thing is, right, a lot of times our field notes or observations or participant you know, in observation work would end up finding some of the same information, but then it's like we can present the same idea in multiple different ways and use different methodologies to get the same data, which actually for us, and actually just, you know, speaking to the anthropologists, sociologists, and social sciences in the audience too, this is actually, I think, a powerful point of, of also the social science flexibility. We can actually take methods from quantitative OKI scores and net promoter scores and surveys and get the same results if we did a quantitative or qualitative observational research too and, and interviews and and present them either way, depending on who our audience is. And so uh, I don't think that quantitative data can do that as much as qualitative can. We have a flexibility built into how we collect our method or methodologically agnostic, right? We can use a bunch of different methods. And even to your point, Oscar, before that, you had to learn new methods when you wanted to move into business that academia doesn't teach you because they either don't know or most grad classes and so sure anthro don't teach business thinking for one. They don't even teach design thinking. You know, but even that idea too, that design thinking, I think is very fundamentally important for doing problem solving, but it's also business 101. <laughs> and so even understanding what methods we could do and the fact that we actually have a flexibility of drawing from qualitative and quantitative and business methods and, and other forms of data collection. I know there's more flexibility that we have, I think, than I see in, in other industries and in groups. And so I think that's actually another like thumbs up for anthro. And so I gotta, I gotta be inclusive here, social science. Embrace diversity. Well, that's Even right. other quantitative people. Yeah, 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 exactly right. <laughs> We've got a few minutes left. So I'd love to hear a little bit about if there's any other stories that come to mind that you think kind of help fill this, this idea in a little bit more. Let's talk about uh, some cases because people love okay. to hear about some stories, right? They do, yeah. Mm -hmm. I like stories. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So let, yeah, let's, let's start with the uh, memorial services then. Yeah. Tell us, tell us a bit about that project. Well, this company, they have their sales force that were having a really tough time selling services and almost like an insurance where you pay now for all the expenses that will have to be covered after you die. Right. <laughs> anyway, the sales force had a hard time selling these uh, services to people because uh, people don't want to hear about their own death Not and even less their death of their loved ones. Yeah. They had a hard time to, to sell these services. So they were doing some publicity in social media, also with no good results. <laughs> I'm just trying to imagine, like I'm <laughs> scrolling through my Twitter feed. Have you thought about dying today? Actually, yes, I have, because there's a pandemic, but continue. Yeah. It just that seems like the funniest thing in the world to try to sell funeral services through social, social media. media. <laughs> like Instagram, like here's a nice <laughs> picture of a casket. <laughs> when I was listening to the story of this client, I 
immediately came into my head, okay, there are two issues here. One is the issue of trust. People don't trust. Uh, where should they engage in, in acquiring now a service of something that they will eventually use in an, a certain future? And the second was, the second aspect is the, the taboo of talking about death. Mm -hmm. So confidence and the taboo of death. So I said, we need to diminish as much as we can these two factors. So my, my suggestion was to create a tribe of followers. Mm -hmm. I, no, not a tribe about death, <laughs> but rather a tribe of, of followers around a company that is willing to offer some value for the spiritual life of their audience, of their people. Mm -hmm. So they have very nice gardens, very nice halls and chapels and rooms. And I said, why don't you put them to use? Offer them to the community. Offer your space for Bible courses, for masses, to celebrate masses, for all these kinds of spiritual activities for the community so that they can use your facilities and have the opportunity to know you better, to know what you have, because these, they have beautiful gardens. So once they, they have experience of it, when they go to a circle of prayer, let's say, the physical experience of being in your very nice chapel or your very nice rooms or even in your very nice uh, marble bathrooms, <laughs> <laughs> they will be in their memory. So when, whenever they suffer the loss of a loved one, immediately they will think of you. Right. Because they already have already an experience. Right. Mm -hmm. So they bought my idea. <laughs> they really like my idea. And they decided to, to create a campaign for all the all different kinds of religious groups to celebrate their activities and courses on, in their facilities. Mm. So they start to develop a name. And all of a the sudden, their relatives and, and family members and friends of the people who assisted and had already the experience of the memorial services facilities, they thought of them and started to have some sales based on the word of mouth that started to spread out basically on creating value or offering value for the community. And also it's, it sounds like that's like a way of building trust too. The other pillar you're talking about that they can trust this organization to be there for the community. Yeah, exactly. So they use Facebook and social media not to publicize the death, <laughs> but rather to publicize all the services that they were doing for the community. That so makes sense. It, was a, it was like a detour in order to get to your target market. If I was going to use a, an anthropology word, if I might, you might, you do create this reciprocity where we're giving something to you and in exchange, other people will feel maybe not consciously holden, but in some way connected to, oh, we should, you know, also... Return and use this organization as well. Yeah, that makes sense. That that's cool, and that that's that's a nice example too of a part of life most people are uncomfortable with, but that we have to deal with. It's like also adding value in life, and and it seems also interesting too because you're kind of talking about explicitly spiritual events they were they were offering too. So it's a nice idea of, of having a Sunday school or a mass or something. You know, if you're gonna, you're all going to end up there, so you might as well like have a good time before you get there. <laughs> yeah, this methodology, or what I proposed to them, was this is something that I, I, I could have used also for a company that were selling, I don't know, uh, some items, some material goods, no necessarily services. But in, instead of using what is called the brutal force, instead of using discounts, promotions, or, or sales, by providing value to your customers, you create a brand of followers in which they are already convinced of you, they already trust you, that they don't need the push of a sale, the push right. of an offer, mm -hmm. because they already trust you. So it's like almost and, bypassing the sale. And you create value for yourself. By doing this for the community, you create a position in which you don't need to offer discounts because they already mm -hmm. trust you. Even better, right? They already recognize you. And it's funny because that's also a quietly subversive practice. It's actually, you know, building in trust and then and the kind of saying, it also seems like it's not entirely about sales for them either. It is about like, how do we build a community and give back 
or build reciprocity and, and then they take care of themselves, which is cool. This reminds me of the other case that I wanted to share with you. Yeah, please. Of the optical store in San Luis Potosí, Mexico. They sell sunglasses and prescription glasses for all kinds of people. Their store is their store is located in downtown San Luis Potosí. With COVID, they had a hard time coping. No, with no influx of people because all the cities in Mexico were pretty much deserted. So the the company rely upon their sales, near 70% of their sales came from people who walk in into the store. Right. Mm-hmm. So with COVID, they collapsed completely. So they didn't know what to do. They did some Facebook ads and some uh, social media advertising with no that much success. So they didn't know what to do. They are in my list of subscribers. I We stay in touch and I said, I can help you. So I didn't know exactly what I was going to do. <laughs> well, I could help. I knew I could help. I didn't know exactly, how I was exactly. going to help, but yes, I knew I could help. I, so uh, we chatted. We had, we had a, a first meeting and I said, okay, sounds like uh, you're going through difficult times. Let's do a project. So it was a three-month project. It's finishing next week, actually. During the first session, I, as an anthropologist, I started to pose a lot of questions. Before the first meeting, I gave them an assessment in which they have to fill out with near 50 questions about that is a very deep uh, analysis of their business. So even though if they don't answer all the questions, they may, they, they are forced to think differently about their business and their possibilities and, and what they were doing. Hmm. When we had the first meeting, they already had a bunch of ideas as a result of of answering the assessment or doing the assessment. So in the interview or in the conversation, it was very evident that there was no way under the current circumstances that they could bring people in to the store. Right. I said, but in the conversation, I discovered that they had... um, bad uh, CRM. It was a one-year period CRM. And when they remember to fill it in, they just put the the information. But they have near 100 100 people in that database. And I said, I think that's going to be the first move. I think the first move is to recontact those customers as a follow-up from their last purchase and we will create a script in which the idea was not to sound salesy, but rather, how can we be helpful? Last time you bought these kind of prescription glasses or you bought these sunglasses, we want to know how, how you're doing. Are they okay? They are not broken? Are they not scratched? What's your experience with the, with the current glasses so far? Hmm. So there was this, this script that they needed to follow with some, in order to, to provide value to the customers. And as a result of doing that, of contacting those customers, their sales increased 20% in the first 15 days. Wow. Their customers were so happy to hear about them. It's like, oh, I'm glad you, you I'm glad I'm important to you. Right. Yeah. Like, I, by the way, I needed to change my glasses. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. Mm-hmm. So uh, by working with them, I was able to help them to change their mindset about creating value. And I said, you don't want only their money. You want their loyalty. Right. You need to provide them with value. So I shared with them the story that I had when I was living in Berlin, in Germany, I, when my glasses was broken. So I went to a store in Berlin and they fixed it. And I said, okay, how much? <laughs> they said, no, it's for free. I said, what? <laughs> yeah, it's a service for you. I said, wow, this is amazing. So when I told the story to this business owner in Mexico about his what he could do in, in his business, he said, like, really? That happened? I said, yeah. <laughs> I said, well, what you want is to, is to provide people with excuses, with experiences for them to return and say, I want a pair of glasses from you. Because based on what uh, Gary said, because I owe you right. something that you were so kind to me because you repaired my glasses in the past and you didn't charge me. Now I feel morally responsible to pay back the favor that you did to me. 
Yeah. It's funny because when, from, a, from, a, from a theoretical standpoint, also what that's doing is it's changing the nature of the roles and the identity. Because if you went to a friend to fix your glasses and they said, that'll be $5 you likewise would see that as a violation of the expectations. So by, by say, by not charging it, you, in some ways, whether consciously or not, you reconstitute the relationship from customer and worker transactional into relational of doing favors. And who does favors for one another? Friends. And this little act can recalibrate the whole nature of the roles and the expectations in those kinds of moments. Let me tell you a piece that is very important. In this process in which you create value, you provide value to your customers with the expectancy that the customer will come back to do business with you. There's a piece that needs to be uh, taken into consideration that when you are providing value to the customer, you need to remind the, the customer, like I'm doing this, because these are my values. Whether you come back or not, it's, uh, it's up to you. Yeah. But I'm doing this because of me. Mm -hmm. Because I, this is who I am. And this part is so crucial. Yeah, and, it, and it provides a window into like it, your authentic self. And this is who I am. And my business reflects who I am, exactly. is the idea. Mm -hmm. and, and I have seen many businesses and entrepreneurs that they do follow these kind of actions as, as business tricks. You need to create the conditions, the social conditions, the emotional conditions, the cultural conditions to be effective. Otherwise, the message doesn't come across. That's 100% correct too. I, I, I empathize with that and, and agree. So Oscar, I wanna thank you. This has been a great conversation. Thank you for inviting me. Thanks again to Oscar Barrera for joining us and Gary David for co-hosting this conversation. It has been super interesting to think about the subversive power of anthropology for helping organizations understand their own culture, helping folks rewrite their stories, and to build in intrinsic motivation for driving positive change. I'd love to hear stories about your own work in business. If you work as a consultant or for an organization, shoot me a message at thisanthrolife at gmail.com or DM me on Twitter at thisanthrolife. How have you used anthropology in business? What are some of the challenges that you faced? What are some of the successes that you won doing this kind of work? Today's episode was edited and produced with help by Sarah McDonald and myself. It's been a pleasure as always, and I hope you are staying strong and safe out there. I'm Adam Gamwell, and we'll see you next time.